thank you for firing up the Sunrise Church podcast. My name is Steve Garcia, and I am the lead pastor at Sunrise. We are a community of Jesus followers from all walks of life, all colors of skin, and all ages. And I hope this message you hear today inspires you to deepen your connection with Christ. And now, here's Pastor John Hill. Let's dive in. Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you here today. Thanks for watching online. Those of you who are in person, uh, man, it's great to be here with you, uh, especially on, I think it's a beautiful day, except for um, I saw a couple cows floating by. It's a little windy, but, um, <laughs> but uh, it's, it's really great to be here, and especially again online. Thank you for uh, joining us. Um, we are going to continue in our series. I'm honored to be able to continue our series uh, on uh, being thankful or full of thanks. And we have already begun what I think is a powerful series over the first couple of weeks. We're going to be in our third week today. Uh, and we talked about in the week one, the uh, contentment. Uh, the fact that if we're not content and if we have a discontentment, then that can rob us of our joy, can rob us of our thankfulness, our gratitude. Uh, and then last week we talked about complaining and uh, I told the first service, it was a genius move by our pastor, Steve, to be able to preach a message on complaining and then issue a challenge to fast from complaining for seven days. Anybody take up the challenge? Okay, I'm not going to ask you how it went because you might break your fast. But, um, but I thought it was genius that Pastor Steve uh, preached on it and then issued that challenge so nobody could go home and complain about his sermon. You know, it was like, that's, that's perfect. How'd it go? Um... Wonderful, you know, and, uh, and then next week we're going to talk about comparison and comparing and, and how uh, toxic that can be in our lives. Today I want to talk about a topic that I think is it's such appropriate timing because of Thanksgiving week being out in front of us. Uh, and I'm really uh, excited because I think, and this is my hope for us, is that if we could get uh, a grip on this topic, if we can somehow get to the place where I think God wants us to be on this particular issue, I think we can have the best Thanksgiving ever. I think that even though some of you are going into what may be a really exciting time with family and all of that, uh, and then the other 95% of us have people in our families that cause us to struggle. Uh, they could be uh, extended family, it could be in-laws, it could be siblings, it could be parent-child, whatever it is. Some of you may even deal a little bit with loneliness and just dealing with the fact that some of your family is not around anymore. So there's, there's differing you know, emotions here. But I think, and it's going to sound weird when I tell you what we're going to talk about, but if, if, if you understand how to deal with this and, and, and get to the place where I think God wants us to be again, you will have the best Thanksgiving ever. What we're going to do is we're going to talk about the topic of competition. See, everybody's so fired up about it. They're so excited. Um, because when we come to the idea of competition, I think I want to just explain a little bit about what I want to talk about. Because I'll just acknowledge right up front for some of you, you know, ready to write an email or put on the form or whatever. Uh, theologians, apologetics, whatever. Uh, apologists, I should say, uh, among our crowd. There is a form of, there's a way to compete, I think, in a healthy manner. Okay, you win. Now, I want to talk about 
the stuff that we normally do, which is not usually healthy. And I want to start with a definition. If you go to Google or whatever and you look it up, you find this. I wanted to look at the origin of the word competition. Where does it come from? It comes from the early 17th century. It's Latin. Uh, some of the ideas behind it, is they actually took two words, one that meant strive for and the other one that meant rivalry, and they kind of put them together. Well, right off the bat, that's not a super positive outlook on competition, right? Striving is just the idea of making all the efforts you can. Rivalry means you're looking for others who, you know, maybe they have something you want, they have something you think you deserve, whatever it might be. And so you're striving to get what they have and, or beat them to it or win or whatever else. And so it's, it's you getting what you want at the expense of others. That's what I want to talk about today. Now, what's great about this week and why it's so incredible is that we're sitting here on the verge of Thanksgiving week, which ends, at least the, the weekday, ends with Friday, which we call Black Friday, which already is like, what? It's an opportunity for all of us to be highly competitive in the marketplace, right? And some people even camp out and they pitch tents and they're going to get through, and, and then they don't care who they hurt what the damage is, what the collateral is, it doesn't matter. There's no, like the Marines, like no man left behind. No, leave everybody behind because I want that toy or I want that whatever, that door buster they even call them. So we're even damaging property to get in. And that's just a microcosm really of, of for some of us, our whole entire lives. And I've talked with people who are into Black Friday. You know what their, their lives are filled with? Stress, tension, anxiety, covetousness, materialism, all kinds of stuff. And they're just convinced. I've seen people, I didn't get what I was, Christmas is ruined. It's like a month away. Christmas is ruined because I didn't get in. Because some person twice my age beat me to it and I couldn't believe they lifted weights and they knocked me over. Here's the question that I want to ask you. What if everything we compete for won't or can't bring us the fulfillment that we believe it promises. What if you actually got everything that you were competing for and what if at the end of the day, all of the prizes that you compete for, all of the things that you thought would do so much really don't? I remember one Christmas when I was about 11 years old, I was getting ready to go into middle school and, um, and, and we had went to my uncle's house for Christmas. We weren't at our own home, we went to my uncle's house. My sisters and I have two sisters, uh, one was 10, one was nine at the time, sorry, nine and eight at the time. And I was in a heavy competition with my sisters, pretty much from birth. I was the first born. I was already competing with whoever was going to be born next. And I remember that every Christmas we would count our gifts and then we would rag on each other about who was loved more based on the number of gifts. It didn't matter what they cost. You could have 50 gifts that went from the Dollar Tree store. So mom spent $50 on you and you could have three gifts that she spent $100 on. You were still loved less because you only got three and the other person got 50. But this year I was going to break the mold because I wanted to bike. Because I wanted to be able to ride to middle school because I needed my freedom. I was too young for a driver's license, so to me the next best thing was a, a bike, a Schwinn Beach Cruiser. We called them a tank. I wanted black, I wanted white wall tires, I wanted the foam on the grip, right? I'd already graduated. I didn't want a card in the spokes. I wanted, you know, I wanted to be able to ride this thing like a man and go to middle school on my bike. So we line up Christmas that day, and, and the girls, man, you know, we do that thing where you just, okay, this is for so You give them all out before you start opening them. So my sisters had like a fortress of gifts, both sides. They started singing the day. I had one gift. 
They started singing and dancing. They had routines worked out. We got more gifts than you. you. Okay, so they're doing all this, and I'm sitting there confident, though, because I'm like, I have a gift. I'm sure it's like knee pads or something that relates to a bike. So they start opening their gifts and everything. Oh, look what I got. Did you? Are you going to? One? Oh, one? Okay, we'll wait. We'll, we'll open some more, and then you could open yours. Go through this whole thing. I finally opened a gift. It's a Pittsburgh Steelers football jersey. Now, I love the Pittsburgh Steelers. They were my favorite team. They were my team. And my sisters, of course, to them, they say, you got pajamas, because that's how girls deal with jerseys. But the point is, is that I'm sitting there being humiliated the whole time listening to all of them. But I'm okay, because I'm still thinking something's going gonna, gonna to happen, right? We go through the whole thing. They open the gifts. Then we go inside into the kitchen, because the next tradition is to eat. That's my family tradition. We ate, and then... And then and then we come back out, and I'm like, now it's going to happen. Now it's going to happen. Nope. Another hour to two hours, they're playing with their gifts, and I'm sitting there. Are you going to play with your jersey? What am I going to do with my jersey? So now I look at my mom, and she's like, what's wrong, son? I said, is this it? Is this, this is all of Christmas? I'm getting this jer- Well, you, we should be thankful for you know. I'm, I know that, mom, but I'm, I don't understand. I asked for a bike, and I got a jerk. And I'm upset. And, the, and, and, the, and I'm starting to, like, get misty-eyed. You know, I'm almost in middle school, so I don't want anybody to see me crying and and they're dancing and they're everything else. And then all of a sudden the garage door opens and out comes my uncle with a brand new Schwinn beach cruiser, black with white wall tires, foam handlebars, and a little bell, <laughs> which I removed when I got home. But the point is, <laughs> vring, vring, doesn't work when you're trying to be cool in middle school. But the point is, is I was excited. So now I'm bragging. Now I'm getting them. They're crying. They have a mountain of gift. They're crying because I got a gift. I'm the most loved. I got a bike and a Pittsburgh. And I'm riding it up and down the street. Steelers roll. You know, all that. Three weeks later, all my sister's gifts, gone, broke, lost, thrown somewhere else. My bike, Stolen. People are asking me out the first, did you get it? No, I didn't get it back. I've never had that since. Bike is gone. Bike is gone. I learned a lesson that day. No matter what it is, when you compete like that, here's the thing. All that wreckage, my sister's and I's relationship, the, the Christmas, the adults were all disappointed in all of us. And the bike didn't even last three weeks. And even their gifts didn't even last three weeks. How many gifts do you have laying around that weren't even necessarily wrapped, but things you got, things you earned, things you competed for? You thought this was the greatest thing? Anybody got a box of old trophies at one point they got? Anybody have stories of people that you've uh, humiliated, annihilated, and whatever else? And all of a sudden, whatever that benefited, it's gone. It's not around anymore. You're You're not even fulfilled by it. You might even look back and go, that was really silly. That was dumb. Why did I do that? Here's the thing, it may, it may surprise you, but this is not new. As a matter of fact, even the followers of Jesus, while they were with Jesus, did some of this. Look what happened to Jesus on the last night, or the night, I should say, of his last meal. So just to place it in context, we're going to go to Luke chapter 22. If you have a Bible, you want to look it up, it's fine. It'll also be on the screen. Luke 22, verse 24. A dispute also arose among them, meaning the disciples, as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. So not, listen, they, they did, the disciples weren't even in their first dispute. Notice the word also, the dispute also arose among. That means this is not the first dispute. Not of their whole time with Jesus, this is not their first dispute of the meal. 
They couldn't get through a meal without multiple disputes. The first one dealt with the context right before where Jesus said, uh, someone's going to betray me. So they all started back. You know, one of the gospel writers tried to be nice. Was it me, Lord? Was it me, Lord? I don't think that was the only part of the discussion. I believe God's word. That's what they said eventually. But probably the reason they were saying, was it me, is because somebody else was going, I think it was you. Was it me? No, no, I think it was them. Oh, no, was it me, Lord? See, they were already arguing about who it was that could be the guy that would betray Jesus. Now that led into a discussion of, hey, while we're talking about this, uh, we already know they're eliminated because they probably betrayed him. But who's going to be the greatest? And they competed with each other. I think it's phenomenal, but at the same time, it's pretty normal. This has happened throughout history. You could read the story of Cain and Abel in Genesis where... They had such a competition dispute that one of them got murdered. You can read about the nation of Israel where Jacob, the, the, the person who uh, took on the name Israel, why it's called Israel, uh, was competing with his brother out of the womb, born with a twin brother. He was grabbing for his heel on the way out because he wanted to be first so he can get the birthright. Then later on, he runs a con on his brother and gets his birthright. And then later on, he's living with an uncle and he's trying to, trying to figure out whose sheep had, or who had the most sheep and lambs and whatever else. And then, and then his uncle's trying to play a game on him because he wants to marry one of his daughters and he can't because you got to do this and that. And then, oh, whoops, did a little okey-doke on you. Now you got to do it some more and you get two daughters. He had two wives who then began to argue over who was going to give him a son. Competition after competition after competition. Didn't get any better when the kingdom was there because Saul didn't like David. David messed up with Bathsheba and Absalom, his son, began to want to kill him so he could take the throne. And then his second son, Solomon, from Bathsheba, becomes the king. Well, when he's done, then everybody starts arguing over who's going to be the king. His son, somebody else, divides the whole kingdom, and they're divided for, for, for a long time after that. Competition after competition after competition. Even in the early church, Ananias and Sapphira come in competing with other people, lying about some land they sold. They sold the land. They lied about the amount. God took their life. Then they began to argue and debate over a food program in Acts chapter 6 where they're trying to give out some, but some people were being ignored. And that's because you don't like them as much as you like us. And so then there was a competition going on there. Euodia and Sintiche and Philippians had to be mentioned in Philippians, not for their faithfulness, but because their dispute and their competition was so great that Paul says, somebody please meet with these women and work this out. Competition. There's a whole letter called Philemon who was written to a guy named Philemon whose slave Onesimus ran away, didn't know the Lord, ends up with a guy named Paul, comes to Jesus. Now he needs to go home because Paul says, you got to go home. That was wrong. You shouldn't have ran away. And he's got to write in a letter to Philemon to say, hey, you got to receive this guy, not as a slave, but as a brother. And so now you see this kicked off by the disciples. It's something all of us deal with. And so Jesus says this to them to try to get their attention. The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them. They lord their authority, their position, their power, their influence. They lord it over them. It means they dominate them with it. And those who exercise authority over them call themselves, one gospel writer, or one translator says, friends of the people. Some say benefactors. What it means is, I'm, I'm constantly dominating you and constantly going for what I want over what you want, my needs over your needs, my progress over your progress, but I'm your friend. Anybody go to voting day last week? You know, the point is, is that that's what politicians and kings and leaders do. And they knew that. But the funny thing is what Jesus is trying to get them to see is that's not what I want for you. 
But here's what I see from it. As you look through the history of the Bible, you look through even the history of history, and then you look at this situation with disciples and what Jesus is saying about the Gentiles who have authority, who lord it over all the other people. Here's what I want you to understand about competition. It's a sobering reality, and that is at the heart of competition is a heart filled with pride. See, at the, at the very base of what drives all competition is a heart filled with pride. And, and, and here's, here's something else that you got to see, is that pride drives us to certain things. So if you're wondering if you have pride in your life, if you're wondering if you might be struggling with that, if you feel like, am I competitive? I, I'm not sure. Ask yourself this, can you rejoice with others when things go well for them? Or does that upset you? Oh, I'm sure you could find some people you're happy with if things go well for them. But are there people in your life that you're not happy with? Are there people in your life that you hope, oh, man, I hope it doesn't go well? Have you actually thought that in your own heart and mind? Man, I hope they fall on their face. You could talk more about what people aren't doing than what God is doing. You are obsessed with being overlooked or passed up. You feel like you need to be rewarded in everything you do, and that's the only motivation you have for doing anything. And then finally... You can't forgive, ever. You call it, well, I'm forgiving, but I'm not forgetting. But you're really just not forgiving. In other words, it's all about you. And if it's all about you, and by the way, you don't get away with it because, well, yeah, those people, they puff their chests and they're out there and they're boastful and they're prideful and they say, I'm not like that. No, you're the woe is me part. That's the backdoor pride. See, the difference is, yeah, on one hand, I have the confidence and the, you know, the, the sheer just arrogance to be able to think that I'm God's gift to everybody. On the other side, you're saying, no, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not enough and I'll never measure up and oh my goodness and all of that. And, but you're still competitive and you're still filled with pride because it, here's the only way you know, because you're still just thinking about you all the time on either side. And just in case you haven't caught the news flash yet, all of us struggle with pride. I can tell you right now, I have a graduate degree, an honorary and an earned PhD in pride. I do. Just ask me about it, I'll tell you. And if you don't, you still are filled with pride, but you have coated it with the sin of lying to yourself. And that's the worst kind of deception, guys, is self-deception. Because you're not willing to be open. You're not willing to really investigate. Here's the thing that Jesus does. He calls them out to apply a better standard. Look at verse 26. But you are not to be like that. It should not be so with you, one translation says. I don't want to see that from us. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest and the one who rules like the one who serves. If you want to be truly great, it's not by achieving or competing. It's actually, according to Jesus, by being willing to lose so that you can gain. It's taking the lowest position, which is a child, or he says here the youngest. It's by taking a position that elevates others beyond yourself by being a servant. And you're saying to yourself, that doesn't make sense. Not, nobody in the world believes that or buys that. But look what Jesus says in verse 27, which I love. For who is greater, the one who's at the table or the one who serves? If I asked all of you that, 
Listen, you would find, a, you know, some of you would, would answer the truth. Some of you would answer what you think I want to hear. Some of you would just say Jesus because I know that's the answer to everything. But if we're honest in our hearts, we all know, even Jesus says, right, is it not the one who's at the table? Of course that's the one who's the greatest. It's the one who's at the table. It's not the person who's serving the table. Yet what Jesus says, which I love, he says, but I am among you as one who serves. Don't lose the fact that he says, but I am the one. Here's what Jesus says. Who's the best? Who's the most highest honor? Who's the greatest? So the one who sits at the table, the one who serves. But yet here I am. Listen, listen, listen. I'm not just one who serves. I made the table. And I made everybody who's going to sit at the table. It's my table. And I invited and I made them sit there. And yet I'm here to serve them. I didn't come and make them sit there so they could all enjoy and appreciate, you know, how, how great it is to be there with me. Although that is ironically true. He came first as a human to say, Here's my table. I want you to sit at it, and I'm going to serve you. So here's what we know, and this is what Jesus teaches us. If the heart of competition is a heart filled with pride, then the anti-venom to pride is humility. If you want to defeat pride in your life, if you want to be cured of pride in your life, then you must become humble. You must choose to become humble because that's the anti-venom to pride. Do you know in humility we recognize our brokenness before a holy God? We are able to be transformed as a result by a holy God. We receive a new identity. We receive a new purpose. We receive a new hope. And we even receive a new mind in humility. We're literally transformed into something we could not be on our own. We can then be freed to redefine competition. The prize of competition is no longer the things of the world. Status, power, money, stuff, authority, positions. That's not the prize because all of those will be stolen, taken one day. They will never measure up to what you think they will measure up. Is it bad to have some of those things? No. What it is bad is for those things to have you. That's the difference. When you think that's the thing, then you've lost the thing that is the thing. Somebody write that down and try not to stutter when you do it. As an example, Paul, when he got this concept, He's not there at the dinner, but he gets this concept, and he's writing to the church at Philippi, and he says this, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. In one translation, it says in your relationships, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ. Well, what was Jesus' attitude? He says, who, verse 6, existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. I want you to stop first and understand this word existing. He said he existed, he's existing in the form of God. In the Greek, the the verb tense that is used for the word existing is actually a tense in the Greek that's hard for us to capture in English, but it means that that whatever that verb is, it was happening in the past, it's happening now, and it's going to happen in the future. 
So in other words, it's never not happened. And this is said of Christ. Jesus never didn't exist. Now, for some of us, that's not a big surprise, as it might be. Jesus didn't start existing when he was born into the human realm. He actually existed before that. He existed before even creation. He existed before it all. And he existed in human form during a historical period of time, and now he exists still. This is so important and so critical because it means that Jesus existed before Bethlehem. It means that he existed before the Exodus, he existed before the Bible, and he existed before creation. This is so critical for us to understand as we build this understanding of what Jesus did and where he was able to be an example to all of us of what humility really is. Here's how Peter describes the same concept, or Paul, I'm sorry, describes the same concept to a different church in Colossae. For in him, Jesus, in Jesus, all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. So again, he existed before creation. At this point in the message, I would like to invite everybody to take a big deep breath. Do it all together now. Let it out. That was Jesus. That was Jesus. Anybody like a nice sunrise? Jesus. How about the sunset? Almost better than the sunrise. As you get older, you appreciate the sunrise more because it means you got another day. But also Jesus' idea. How about the fact that our planet doesn't spin off its axis into the universe because it's perfectly situated at the right angle and it also is at the exact right distance from the sun and then the moon is in the right place so it creates tides and it creates all... Jesus. How about the variety as you look around this room and you see the variety of all the different kinds of people? That's why it's so silly for one group to think they're better than another. We all bear the image of God, Jesus. He existed. He existed. And then he, really, he spoke next as part of his creation. He spoke it into existence. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. We just sang about it. Is he not worthy of it all. And Paul says this in Colossians, but also in Philippians. And he says, although he existed, notice what he says next, in the form of God. The Greek word there is morphe, and it just means substance, value, quality, essence. Literally, he is God, but I don't have time to explain. I don't have the ability to explain, even if I had time. But we have uh, uh, this sort of three persons, one God. One God, three persons. I don't get it. You're all glad I don't get it because if I could get God, he's not very big. And by the way, if you could get God, he's not very big. Any God that you could get your mind around, run. It's a false God. Because if you can get your mind around it, then that means some human made him up. We want a God we don't get. I want to get enough so that I can trust him for what I don't get, but I don't want to get it all. Because that makes God beyond me, which is sort of the definition of God. So the reality is, is that he was in the form of God. Their readers would have understood it as a ring that, that a king would wear. It was like a, a seal that he could use, like if he's sending a letter off or, or, or making an edict or whatever else, they would take and burn wax and put it on the scroll and, they would, and he would press his seal into it. And that morphe, that, that press into that seal was just as good as if the king was in your presence. And what did Jesus say about himself? If you've seen me, you've seen what? Or who? The Father. Because he was the Morphe. He knew who he was from the time he was born. 
But yet he did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. I like that word. Some translations say grasped. The idea is that even though he shared this substance, this value, this essence, this quality with God, he didn't take advantage or exploit it for his own good. Instead, verse 7 says, he emptied himself. It doesn't mean he emptied himself of his divinity. It means he emptied himself of his rights and privileges because of his divinity. There were certain things that he kind of limited on his own by his own choice so that he could do something that, that, that needed to be done, so that he could choose, it says next, uh, by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity, it says he came as a man, a person. He entered humanity. The Bible scholars call this the incarnation. We talk about it at Christmas. He basically left the throne of heaven where he'd always existed, and he came among us, Bethlehem, right? God, or, I'm sorry, Emmanuel, God with us. He walked among us. And how powerful that was, but what's most important is when he came and when he had come as a man, look at next, verse 8. He humbled himself. How many of you know that Jesus was not humbled? He humbled himself. Nobody forced him. Nobody overpowered him. Nobody had the right to demand it. No, none of that. He chose to humble himself. He became a person. He took on the form of all of this nasty flesh and walked among us. And, and it's a very important principle of what he was able to do. But the point is he became obedient to the Father to the point of death, even to death on a cross. And what's most important about that is he didn't have to. He chose to. The one who created life gave up his life willingly so others would not lose their life. By choice, he humbled himself. It's not because he was coerced or overpowered. He wanted to willingly. Here's the thing. As I was thinking through and I was hearing another guy talk about this and I stole it. It's just not mine. Jesus created the hands of the men who would ultimately put him on a cross. You think about that? He knitted the hands together of the guys who were going to pound away at his flesh as they put him on a wooden stake. He gave breath to the crowd who would shout, crucify him. He gave authority to the religious and government leaders who would indict and sentence him through false accusations. He created the scientific system that grew the tree that would become the cross. He also created the scientific system that created the rocks from which the tomb would be dug out that they would lie him in. Some might say no greater love has anyone than this. Jesus even said this about himself. I would suggest that no one has greater humility than this. By his own choice. Here's why this is so important. Because he was willing to lean into, we had a need. We had things that we were dealing with as human beings. We still do. Jesus leaned into that and took on suffering so that our suffering could have hope. Because his ultimate desire was for us. And you say, why does he leave it? Why does he continue? Because every day we live, even in the midst of some suffering, is another day that we have a chance to draw nearer to Christ. And for some of you, for the very first time, for you to come into a relationship with this living God. And so he leaned into pain so that now, at the time of his human existence, so that we would not have to endure pain for all of eternity. 
And this life is, is, is this life because it's giving us the opportunity to lean back into him because he leaned into us. And what it means is, is that his suffering gives us hope even in the midst of an imperfect and shattered and broken world. It means that I was raised in a home with no father, but I could still hear the words of that song, Abba, Father, I belong to you. I don't belong to my earthly dad. I belong to my heavenly father. And he had chosen me and given that for me from the beginning. And whatever it is you're carrying, whatever it is you think you're supposed to compete for, whatever you think is supposed to fulfill your life, if it's not found in Christ, you are chasing a butterfly that even when you catch it, you will realize it's sand slipping through your fingers. It is never going to provide for you what your creator and savior and Lord can provide for you. But do you know that? I'm not talking about, I am talking to those of you who have just got here, but I'm also talking to some of you who have been here for decades and you know church inside and out, but are you still competing? Is your heart still filled with pride? Do you still need the anti-venom known as humility? And again, just ask yourself those questions. Can I rejoice with others? Can I forgive people? Uh, can I stop compare, I mean, competing with other people and, and, and doing all the things that I need to do to show myself because I want to be noticed and I want to be... I want you all to understand that Jesus knows everything that you've been through. He's been through it too. He knows what it's like to be stabbed in the back. He knows what it's like to be deserted by people you invested his whole life into. He knows what it's like for a family to be disappointed in, in the expectations that he didn't achieve for them that, he, that they wanted. Or whole people to, to be disappointed because he didn't rise up to what he was supposed to do as the so-called savior. He understands what it's like to live without a parent because even Joseph, according to scholars, quite possibly died in his late teens or early 20s. He also knows what it's like to be mercilessly and content continuously tempted day in day out he knows what you're going through he didn't he, he understands and he won't waste it he won't waste our pain so for those of you who don't know Jesus and have not committed your life to him if I could suggest to you that you have two options today because in the scheme of scripture and you could read through it and you could see this pattern we can either humble ourselves before God and allow him to exalt us to wherever he's going to take us. Or we can exalt ourselves and wait for him to humble us. I think of Satan who was part of God's creation. And in Isaiah chapter 14, we see his heart. It says, you said in your heart, I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the most mount of assembly, on the uttermost heights of Mount Zaphon. I will ascend above all the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Five different times Satan says, I will, I will, I will, I will. Jesus comes and he says, not my will. Which are you saying today? Because the reality is God, it says, for this reason, because he endured mockery, disrespect, and injustice, uh, because it seemed like weakness to everybody else, but he actually gained by losing, it says God highly exalted Jesus and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
Either you will willingly humble yourself and let God exalt you, or you will exalt yourself and watch God humble you. You have two choices. You could bow the knee to Jesus, because one day, listen, he is coming back, and he will make everything right. So right now, we get to freely worship him. But there's coming a time when people will be made to worship him. And that leaves us with two choices. We can bow our knee now to Jesus as our Savior and our Lord. Or we can wait and exalt ourselves and bow the knee to Jesus later as Lord and judge. And friends, you do not want to be in that judgment. I'm not trying to scare anybody. I just encourage you, imploring you, begging you to consider the sacrifice that your Savior laid out for you so that you could live the life that the Gospel of John, the writer John, someone who hung out with Jesus for three years, says that you could take hold of the life that is really life. The life that this world says is life is not really life. It's a fake, phony life that does not fulfill. And some of you know this. You're sitting here today and you know it. And that's why you're here. And I just want to encourage you. Make today that day that you make the choice to say, I don't want to deal with pride anymore. I don't want to deal with myself and being self-focused. I want to reach out and accept this gift that Jesus is offering. So I'm going to invite everybody to bow your heads. And as you do that, if you're interested in a relationship with Jesus today, then I'm going to lead you through a prayer, and I'm going to invite you to pray this prayer. And it's really, make it about your heart, not about, I mean, the words are important, but they're not magical, they're not critical. What's important is your heart. And when I say that, what I mean is it's important that you acknowledge your need for a Savior, that you believe that Jesus is that Savior, that you're willing to commit your life to Christ today. And if you are, I would ask you to pray along with me. And you can do this in the quietness of your heart. If you want to say it out loud, that's okay. Jesus, today I place my faith in you. I cannot save myself. I have so much pride in my life. Today I call upon you to save me. I believe you died in my place. I believe that today I am willing to surrender my life to you. Today I choose to leave my old life behind, my life of pride, and follow you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. If you prayed that prayer, first of all, congratulations, because I'm excited for you, and I believe somebody in this room must have prayed that prayer, because you just entered, took that step toward Jesus that says that I'm done with my old way of life, I'm ready for a new way of life. We want to be able to follow up with you. We don't want to just leave you there, so we're going to ask you if you'd like, you can actually take the form that Deandra talked about earlier, the program that you received, where you have prayer requests that you can write. On that form is also a place to, to check the box, I said yes to Jesus. And in just a few moments, we're going to have an offering and you can drop it in there. You can also text the word next to the phone number that's up on the screen. Or after service, DeAndre's going to tell you about how you can go in the hallway and talk to somebody at the next step table. The point is this, take a step. Because listen, the rest of our service together is the hardest part of the service. It's easy to sit and, and enjoy some music, listen to a talk, and okay, now it's done, we're good. The hard part is to respond. And some of you responded in prayer. I'm going to ask you to be super courageous to take another step and respond by letting us know so that we can follow up. Because we want to come alongside you. We want to help you with your new relationship with Jesus. And listen, do not let your pride stiff arm you from God. Some of you have been around for a while, maybe held positions, maybe led ministries, and you don't know Jesus. Let today be that day. Nobody's going to care. We love you. We don't mind. It's okay. Frankly, some of us knew. Your spouse really knew. 
So just make it official. You say, hey, I thought we were talking about being thankful. You're talking about pride. Well, let me throw this at you. We talked about the heart of competition is a heart filled with pride. We talked about the anti-venom to pride being humility. Let me leave you with this. The confirmation of humility is a thankful heart. So what we have is you may start with a heart filled with pride, but through the bridge of humility, because of Jesus' example, responding to Jesus, he provides for you a new heart that can now be filled with gratitude and thankfulness. So the question is this, can you make today this Thanksgiving? And listen, this isn't just for new believers. This is for everybody. Can you make this the Thanksgiving that you make a decision to become someone who has a thankful heart, who's living with humility and not with pride? Let me give you a starting point. These are three hacks real quick. They're not going to take a long time. That will help us live with the peace of Christ ruling in our hearts and teaching us to be thankful. Here's number one. Glorify the creator, not creation. God is better than Steve Jobs. I know he's not alive anymore. But my point is the stuff he made. Worship the creator, not creation. Have your stuff. Don't let your stuff have you. Remember who provided the stuff. Maybe even come back tonight for the night of worship at 5.30 and spend some time worshiping Jesus. And don't come in with complaints and all the other stuff. Come in and worship Jesus. Number two, promote God's will, not our own. Trade in I will for not my will. It's okay. Listen, Jesus notices you. It's okay if no one else does. And more people notice you than you give yourself credit. But the point is Jesus notices you. And if you ever wonder how much God loved us, then all we have to do is look at the cross and say that much. Here's number three, choose influence over authority. What if we struggled for others and not with others? What if we used our stuff to influence people instead of using people to get more stuff? What if this year at Thanksgiving, that's what you did? What if you went into whatever environment you're going to go into, and this Thursday, I'm going to give you three challenges. This Thursday, you go in, and instead of trying to get from everybody, you give to everybody. What if you set the table like Jesus did, and you invite everybody in, and you serve them? It's more than just doing the dishes. It's, more than, it's, it's also serving them relationally, all that. But you just find a way to serve them and not be about you. What if, what if on Friday for for Black Friday and preparing for Christmas and all that other stuff, you decided that you're going to follow God's will in terms of your finances, in terms of your, your approach to gift giving and your approach to why you do that and what you're doing. You're not giving it to gain approval. You're not, it's not a value statement. Instead, you just said, I just want to bless you for Christmas. We're going to get you what I think you know, you'll enjoy, but it doesn't have to be all about that. And maybe even saved a little money, avoided a few bodily injuries. And what if you went all out to influence your family this year and your friends and your job and your community? Let's kick it off tonight because we have a chance to come back tonight and spend time with Jesus at the feet of Jesus and sing to him. I know there's a football game on. I don't know who's playing, but whoever your team is, they're going to lose. <laughs> it's probably on the cable station you don't even have. So the point is... And I am sure if you're watching the Lakers, they're going to lose. So just come <laughs> and worship your Savior tonight. We get a chance the rest of the service to give and to respond. I hope you do. 
Let's pray. Father, thank you for this evening or this morning, God. Thank you for what we get to do this evening. Uh, thank you for the example you give us in Jesus Christ, how powerful it is for us to think about the creator of the universe who didn't have to and wasn't overwhelmed and nobody overpowered him. And, 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 he, and he absolutely had every right to really just ignore us, to rid himself of us. And instead he became like one of us and gave his life so that we could have life. May we celebrate that over these next few moments, Lord. May we celebrate that tonight. May we celebrate that throughout this week as we worship you. Lord, help us to give with joy. Help us to love our families this week. Love our neighbors as we love ourselves. And we'll thank you in advance for all that you do, Lord, even throughout the rest of this service. In Jesus' great and mighty, wonderful name, amen. Thanks again for listening to this podcast. I wanna encourage you to not just stop here. Maybe you sense God is speaking to you today and wanting you to take that next step. So here's two ways you can do just that. The first is text the word next to the number 909-281-7797. That's 909-281-7797. You'll receive a message back with some ways to help you grow. That may mean joining a small group or finding a place to serve or just talking with someone one-to-one about your faith. You can also visit the notes for this podcast and follow the links provided. And if you're within driving distance of one of our four physical locations in Banning, Ontario, Rialto, or Victorville, we'd love for you to stop by sometime and give us a chance to meet you personally. Again, we want to thank you for listening, and we hope to see you soon. God bless.